Chapter twenty five, part two of the House of the Whispering Pines by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Carolyn. Chapter twenty five, part two. I am innocent. Mr. Moffat noted this, and his own lip curled, but with a very different show of feeling from that which had animated his distinguished opponent. Without waiting for the present sentiment to cool, he proceeded immediately with his examination. "'You swear that you have seen this ring but once since the night of your sister's death, and that was when it was shown you in the coroner's office?' "'I do.' "'Does this mean that it was not in your possession at any time during that interim?' "'It certainly does.' Mr. Cumberland, more than one witness has testified to the fact of your having been seen to place your hand in the casket of your sister before the eyes of the minister and of others attending her funeral. Is this true? It is. Was not this a most unusual thing to do? Perhaps. I was not thinking about that. I had a duty to perform, and I performed it. A duty? Will you explain to the jury what duty? The witness's head rose, then sank. He, as well as everyone else, seemed to be impressed by the solemnity of the moment. Though the intensity of my own interest would not allow my eyes to wander from his face, I could imagine the strained look in Ella's as she awaited his words. They came in another instant, but with less steadiness than he had shown before. I even thought I could detect a tremor in his muscles, as well as in his voice. I had rebelled against my sister's wishes. I had grieved and deceived her up to the very night of her foul and unnatural death, and all through drink. Here his eye flashed, and for that fleeting moment he looked a man. I wished to take an oath, an oath I would remember. It was for this purpose I ordered the casket opened, and thrust my fingers through the flowers I found there. When my fingers touched my sister's brow, I inwardly swore never to taste liquor again. I have kept that oath. Difficult as it was in my state of mind, and with all my troubles, I have kept it, and been misunderstood in doing so he added, in lower tones, and with just a touch of bitterness. It was such an unexpected explanation, and so calculated to cause a decided and favourable reaction in the minds of those who had looked upon this especial act of his as an irrefutable proof of guilt, that it was but natural that some show of public feeling should follow— but this was checked almost immediately, and Mr. Moffat's voice was heard rising again in his strange but telling examination. When you thrust your hand in to take this oath, did you drop anything into your sister's casket? I did not. My hand was empty. I held no ring and I dropped none in. I simply touched her forehead. 
This added to the feeling, and in another instant the excitement might have risen into hubbub had not the emotions of one little woman found vent in a low and sobbing cry which relieved the tension and gave just the relief needed to hold in check the overstrained feelings of the crowd. I knew the voice and cast one quick glance that way, in time to see Ella sinking affrightedly out of sight under the dismayed looks of father and mother. Then, anxious to note whether the prisoner had recognized her too, looked hastily back to find him standing quietly and unmoved, with his eyes on his counsel and his lips set in the stern line which was slowly changing his expression. That counsel, strangely alive to the temper and feelings of his audience, waited just long enough for the few simple and solemn words uttered by the accused man to produce their full effect, then, with a side-glance at Mr. Fox, whose equanimity he had at last succeeded in disturbing, and whose cross-examination of the prisoner he had still to fear, continued his own examination by demanding why, when the ring was discovered in Adelaide's casket, and he saw what inferences would be drawn from the fact, he had not made an immediate public explanation of his conduct and the reasons he had had for putting his hand there. "'I am not a muff,' shut from the prisoner's lips, in his old manner. A man who would take such an oath, in such a way, and at such a time, is not the man to talk about it until he is forced to. I would not talk about it now. He was checked at this point, but the glimpse we thus obtained of the natural man, in his indignant and sullen outburst, following so quickly upon the solemn declarations of the moment before, did more for him in the minds of those present than the suavest and most discreet answer given under the instigation of his counsel. Every face showed pleasure, and for a short space, if for no longer, all who listened were disposed to accept his assertions and accord the benefit of doubt to this wayward son of an esteemed father. To me, who had hoped nothing from Moffat's efforts, the substantial nature of the defence thus openly made manifest, brought reanimation and an unexpected confidence in the future. The question as to who had dropped the ring into the casket, if Arthur had not, the innocent children, the grieving servants, was latent, of course, in every breast, but it had not yet reached the point demanding expression. Meanwhile, the examination proceeded. Mr. Cumberland, you have stated that you did not personally drop this ring into the place where it was ultimately found. Can you tell us of your own knowledge who did? I cannot. I know nothing about the ring. I was much surprised, probably more surprised than anyone else, to hear of its discovery in that place. The slip and it was a slip for him to introduce that more, was immediately taken advantage of by his counsel. You say more? Why should it be more of a surprise to you than anyone else to learn where this missing engagement ring of your sister's had been found? Again, that look of displeasure directed towards his questioner, and a certain additional hardness in his reply when he finally made it, I was her brother. 
I had a brother's antipathies and rightful suspicions. I could not see how that ring came to be where it was, when the only one interested in its restoration was in prison. This was a direct blow at myself, and of course called Mr. Fox to his feet, with a motion to strike out this answer. An altercation followed between him and Mr. Moffat, which, deeply as it involved my life and reputation, failed to impress me, as it might otherwise have done, if my whole mind had not been engaged in reconciling the difficulty about this ring with what I knew of Carmel, and the probability which existed of her having been responsible for its removal from her sister's hand. But Carmel had been ill since, desperately ill and unconscious. She could have nothing to do with its disposal afterwards among the flowers at her sister's funeral. Nor had she been in a condition to delegate this act of concealment to another. Who, then, had been the intermediary in this business? The question was no longer a latent one in my mind. It was an insistent one, compelling me either to discredit Arthur's explanation, in which case anything might be believed of him, or to accept for good and all this new theory that some person of unknown identity had played an accessory's part in this crime, whose full burden I had hitherto laid upon the shoulders of the impetuous Carmel. Either hypothesis brought light. I began to breathe again the air of hope, and if observed at that moment, must have presented the odd spectacle of a man rejoicing in his own shame, and accepting with positive uplift the inevitable stigma cast upon his honour by the suggestive sentence just hurled at him by an indignant witness. The point raised by the district attorney having been ruled upon and sustained by the court, Mr. Moffat made no effort to carry his inquiries any further in the direction indicated, but I could see, with all my inexperience of the law and the ways of attorneys before a jury, that the episode had produced its inevitable result, and that my position, as a man released from suspicion, had received a shock the results of which I might yet be made to feel. A moment's pause followed, during which some of Mr. Moffat's nervousness returned. He eyed the prisoner doubtfully, found him stoical and as self-contained as at the beginning of his examination, and plunged into a topic which most people had expected him to avoid. I certainly had, and felt all the uncertainty and secret alarm which an unexpected move occasions, where the issue is momentous with life or death. I was filled with terror, not for the man on trial, but for my secret. Was it shared by the defence? Was Mr. Moffat armed with the knowledge I thought confined to myself and Arthur? Had the latter betrayed the cause I had been led to believe he was ready to risk his life to defend? Had I mistaken his gratitude to myself, or had I underrated Mr. Moffat's insight or powers of persuasion? We had just been made witness to one triumph on the part of this able lawyer in a quarter deemed unassailable by the prosecution. Were we about to be made witness of another? I felt the sweat start on my forehead, and was only able to force myself into some show of self-possession by the evident lack of perfect assurance with which this same lawyer now addressed his client. 
the topic which had awakened in me these doubts and consequent agitation will appear from the opening question mr cumberland to return to the night of your sister's death can you tell us what overcoat you put on when leaving your house arthur was astonished and certainly as disconcerted if not as seriously alarmed as i was by this extraordinary move surprise anger then some deeper feeling rang in his voice as he replied i cannot i took down the first i saw and the first hat the emphasis placed on the last three words may have been meant as a warning to his audacious counsel but if so it was not heeded took down took down from where from the rack in the hall where i hang my things the side hall leading from the door where we usually go out have you many coats overcoats i mean more than one and you do not know which one you put on that cold night i do not but you know what one you wore back no short sharp and threatening was this no a war was on between this man and his counsel and the wonder it occasioned was visible in every eye perhaps mr moffat realized this this was what he had dreaded perhaps at all events he proceeded with his strange task in apparent oblivion of everything but his own purpose you do not know what one you wore back i do not you have seen the hat and coat which have been shown here and sworn to as being the ones in which you appeared on your return to the house the day following your sister's murder i have also the hat and coat found on a remote hook in the closet under the stairs bearing the flower mark on its under brim yes that too yet cannot say which of these two overcoats you put on when you left your home an hour or so after finishing your dinner trapped by his own lawyer visibly and remorselessly trapped the blood shooting suddenly into the astonished prisoner's face was reflected on the cheeks of the other lawyers present even mr moffat betrayed his surprise but it was a surprise not untinged by apprehension mr moffat must feel very sure of himself to venture thus far i who feared to ask myself the cause of his assurance could only wait and search the partially visible face of little ella for an enlightenment which was no more to be found there than in the swollen features of the outraged arthur the excitement which this event caused afforded the latter some few moments in which to quell his own indignation and when he spoke it was passionately yet not without some effort at restraint i cannot i was in no condition to notice i was bent on going into town and immediately upon coming downstairs i went straight to the rack and pulled on the first things that offered it appeared to be a perfect giveaway, and it was, but it was rather a giveaway which I feared threatened Carmel rather than her brother. Mr. Moffat, still nervous, still avoiding the prisoner's eye, relentlessly pursued his course, unmindful, 
wilfully so it appeared of the harm he was doing himself as well as the witness mr cumberland were a coat and a hat all that you took from that hall no i took a key a key from the bunch which i saw lying on the table did you recognize this key i did what key was it it belonged to mr ranelagh and was the key to the club-house wine vault where did you put it after taking it up in my trousers pocket what did you do then went out of course without seeing anybody of course whom should i see it was angrily said and the flush which had begun to die away slowly made its way back into his cheeks are you willing to repeat that you saw no one there was no one a lie all knew it all felt it the man was perjuring himself under his own counsel's persistent questioning on a point which that counsel had evidently been warned by him to avoid i was assured of this by the way moffat failed to meet arthur's eye as he pressed on hastily and in a way to forestall all opposition there are two ways of leaving your house for the city which way did you take the shortest i went through my neighbour's grounds on houston street immediately as soon as i could i don't know what you mean by immediately didn't you stop at the stable a pause during which more than one person present sat breathless these questions were what might be expected from mr fox in cross-examination they seemed totally unsuited to a direct examination at the hands of his own counsel what did such an innovation mean yes i stopped at the stable what to do to look at the horses why one of them had gone lame i wanted to see his condition was it the grey mare had the defence changed places with the prosecution it looked like it and arthur looked as if he considered mr moffat guilty of the unheard-of inexplainable act of cross-examining his own witness the situation was too tempting for mr fox to resist calling additional attention to it with an assumption of extreme consideration he leaned forward and muttered under his breath to his nearest colleague but still loud enough for those about him to hear the prisoner must know that he is not bound to answer questions when such answers tend to incriminate him a lightning glance shot in his direction was the eloquent advocate's sole reply but arthur nettled into speaking answered the question put him in a loud quick tone it was not the grey mare but i went up to the grey mare before going out i petted her and bade her to be a good girl where was she then where she belonged in her stall the tones had sunk so had the previously lifted head he no longer commanded universal sympathy or credence the effect of his former avowals was almost gone 
yet mr moffat could smile as i noticed this and recognized the satisfaction it evinced my heart went on in great trouble this esteemed advocate the hero of a hundred cases was not afraid to have it known that arthur had harnessed that mare he even wanted it known why there could be but one answer to that or so i thought at the moment the next i did not know what to think for he failed to pursue this subject and simply asked arthur if upon leaving he had locked the stable door yes no i don't remember was the bungling and greatly confused reply mr moffat glanced at the jury the smile still upon his lips did he wish to impress that body with the embarrassment of his client relate what followed i am sure the jury will be glad to hear your story from your own lips it's a beastly one but if i've got to tell it here it is i went straight down to cuthbert road and across the fields to the club-house i had not taken the key to the front door because i knew of a window i could shake loose i did this and went immediately down to the wine vault i used an electric torch of my own for light i pulled out several bottles and carried them up to the kitchen meaning to light the gas kindle a fire and have a good time generally but i soon found that i must do without light if i stayed there the meter had been taken out and to drink by the flash of an electric torch was anything but a pleasing prospect besides here he flashed at his counsellor glance which for a moment took that gentleman aback i had heard certain vague sounds in the house which alarmed me as well as aroused my curiosity choosing the bottle i liked best i went to investigate these sounds mr moffat started his witness was having his revenge kept in ignorance of his counsel's plan of defence he was evidently advancing testimony new to that counsel i had not thought the lad so subtle and quaked in secret contemplation of the consequences so did some others but the interest was intense he had heard sounds he acknowledged it but what sounds observing the excitement he had caused and gratified perhaps that he had succeeded in driving that faint but unwelcome smile from mr moffat's lips arthur hastened to add but i did not complete my investigations arrived at the top of the stairs i heard what drove me from the house at once it was my sister's voice adelaide's she was in the building and i stood almost on a level with her with a bottle in my pocket it did not take me a minute to clamber through the window i did not stop to wonder or ask why she was there or to whom she was speaking i just fled and made my way as well as i could across the golf links to a little hotel on cuthbert road where i had been once before there i emptied my bottle and was so overcome by it that i did not return home till noon the next day it was on the way to the hill that i was told of the awful occurrence which had taken place in the club-house after i had left it that sobered me i have been sober ever since mr moffat's smile came back 
one might have said that he had been rather pleased than otherwise by the introduction of this unexpected testimony but i doubt if any one but myself witnessed this evidence of good humour on his part arthur's attitude and arthur's manner had drawn all eyes to himself as the last words i have recorded left his lips he had raised his hands and confronted the jury with a straightforward gaze the sturdiness and immobility of his aspect were impressive in spite of his plain features and the still unmistakable signs of long-cherished discontent and habitual dissipation he had struck bottom with his feet and there he would stand or so i thought as i levelled my own glances at him but i had not fully sounded all of alonzo moffat's resources that inscrutable lawyer and not easily to be understood man seemed determined to mar every good impression this unfortunate client managed to make ignoring the new facts just given undoubtedly thinking that they would be amply sifted in the coming cross-examination he drew the attention of the prisoner to himself by the following question will you tell us again how many bottles of wine you took from the clubhouse one no i'm not sure about that i'm not sure of anything i had only one when at the inn in cuthbert road you remember but one i had but one one was enough i had trouble in carrying that was the ground slippery it was snowy and it was uneven i stumbled more than once in crossing the links mr cumberland is there anything you would like to say in your own defence before i close this examination the prisoner thus appelled to let his eye rest for a moment on the judge then on the jury and finally on one little white face lifted from the crowd before him as if to meet and absorb his look then he straightened himself and in a quiet and perfectly natural voice uttered these words nothing but this i am innocent End of chapter 25 part 2